This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm James Ramsey. And I'm Rachel Neal. All festival long, WNYC is bringing you exclusive coverage of the talks and panels featuring some of the biggest names in film today. We're going to hear from people like Nate Silver, Gus Van Zant, and Janine Garofalo about the projects that have people the most excited. But first, these apples. Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I love Goodwill Hunting. You know, fun fact about Goodwill Hunting, you know the insurmountably difficult math problem that the professor puts up on the board? Yes. My colleagues and I have conferred, and there is a problem on the board right now that took us more than two years to prove. So let this be said. The gauntlet has been thrown down, but the faculty have answered and answered with vigor. But then Matt Damon picks up that gauntlet and goes straight to the chalkboard and solves the problem. Yes, except it turns out the problem isn't so challenging. What do you mean? I mean, I saw a video on YouTube of this Cambridge mathematician who identified the problem. It's called the homeomorphically irreducible trees of degree 10. <laughs> it does not sound easy. No. I know, but there's this video online of this Cambridge mathematician that you can watch, and he solves it. And basically, it's these 10 dots that have to be connected with lines, and all you have to do is draw like a stick figure with an afro, and you've solved it. And any Sudoku player on the train probably has the puzzle skills to, uh, to complete this thing. Yeah, I mean, that drawing just still sounds like all math to me. Uh, so Matt Damon's character is still a genius. He is. And you know who else was? Who? But you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. God, there are so many good lines in this movie. That clip, of course, was Robin Williams, whom I'm sure we'll hear plenty about on this panel following a screening of Goodwill Hunting with the film's director, Gus Van Zant, actress Minnie Driver, and the actor Stellan Skarsgård, who plays the mathematician that we heard earlier. All right, well, let's listen in. I'm Faith Saley. I am delighted to be moderating this event, and I'm going to get right to it in the interest of time and introduce you to the filmmaker, Gus Van Sant. We also have Minnie Driver. Stellan Skarsgård. And theoretical physicist and professor of mathematics at Columbia University and the co-founder of the World Science Festival, Brian Green. And a psychiatrist and professor at the Columbia University Narrative Medicine Department, Paul Brody. So I want to ask each of you, uh, when you last saw the film and what it was like to revisit it. So Gus, I'll start with you. Um, I, I often see like the the last half of this film at presentations like this. I'm not <laughs> sure. The last time I saw the entire film may have been a, quite a long time ago, like '97 or so. Really? Yeah, I think so. How do you feel when you catch even the last um, few moments? You know, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's still holding together pretty well. And many when's the last time you saw it in its entirety? Oh, like like ten. I think like ten years ago. Yeah, for sure. It's you guys. If I had made this film or had starred in it, I'd watch it every night. Yeah, but you have to understand. It's like keeping. Well, for me, it's like, like you you keep the things that are really precious. Like you keep them in a place that you don't use up the preciousness by making it every day. 
and I, I like it when I see snippets of it, usually on airplanes. People always seem to watch it on airplanes, and they sob and have to get Kleenex because airplanes make you cry more. I don't know why that is. Have it's you ever physics. been on a, physics behind that, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's physics and psychology, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Minnie, have you ever been on a plane ride where someone has been watching it and then noticed that Minnie Driver was seated? A few oh rows yeah, to and I mean that's tough. That's a tough break for them. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, they like have seen a ghost. But it's a really beautiful film. You're lucky if you make. You're lucky if you make one like that in your career. I mean, you're, you really are. Like, there's so much rubbish out there. To make something that stands up really beautifully years and years later and that you're proud of. Like, it's, it's really, it's amazing. And, Stellan, when's the last time you watched it? Well, after recently, it was, it was 1997. Uh, but I, I, since I didn't remember anything and I was going to get questions here, I, I had to see it on the plane over here. Uh, but it, it, and, and I was surprised how, how little it had aged. Uh, because the, the, the sort of the core of the film is is timeless, and the questions are timeless, and it's so so humane and beautiful. Yeah. Did you? So you watched it on a plane within the last twenty four hours? Yeah, Minnie was sitting right behind me. Yeah. <laughs> did you? Did you uh, shed a tear? No, I didn't. <laughs> we'll never know the truth. <laughs> and, and Brian, did you see this when this came out in '96? I did. I did see it when it came out. When's the last time I saw it? That'd be last night. Uh, yeah, saw it on Netflix last night, and um, uh, I thought it was fantastic. I did not remember. I don't. I have a terrible memory for films, so I did not remember a lot of it from the initial, and I just thought it was spectacular. Uh, and I will admit to shedding a tear last night. What, what parts? Uh, well, uh, you know, the obvious ones, I guess. You know, when, when Robin Williams and, you know, um, you know our, our hero are, are really clasping one another, that's a huge moment. Man, oh, man. You know? And, uh, and then at the end, when he makes this decision to follow his heart as opposed to just, you know, go off into the abstract mathematical realm and work for the NSA or something, you know, just really grabs you. Do you remember when the film came out feeling like, did it feel like it was remarkable that there was this, what became a blockbuster film that featured math? Well, it's a funny thing, and it's an interesting question we could follow up on, but I don't know that it does feature math per se. Uh, math is there as this mystical quality that differentiates this character because it means he's genius because he can solve math problems. But there isn't math there. An interesting question which I ask myself, and I don't know if others have a thought on this, is what if he was a different kind of genius? How would the film have changed if he wasn't a math genius but, you know, a music prodigy or, you know, a fantastic poet or, or some other expression of genius? Great butcher. Uh, it's a, it's a good, good question. I mean, how, how would it have changed? Well, um, you know what? I want to I want to press pause on that question because 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 yeah. there's something there. I, I do want to ask you, Paul, because I know you had you, you felt like you saw this with different eyes, yes. uh, having seen it recently. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? So I saw the film when it first came out, and I was a young psychiatrist at the time, and I forgot about it. I haven't I haven't seen it till a couple of weeks ago. I watched it again. And I realized that it had had a profound impact on me because I remember at the time seeing it and thinking that the Robin Williams character was really unorthodox. 
So I was training in a system that was saying that psychiatrists should be, be, you know, there should be a blank screen. You shouldn't divulge much about yourself. And I was really struggling with that at that time. It never worked for me. So when I saw this now, I realized that I'd imprinted his character as a kind of a role model. And the, kind, and the work that I now do is so much about sharing with people who I really am as part of my therapeutic approach that um, it, it really struck me. I was very grateful for having seen the film at the time that I did all those years ago. So the film's almost 20 years old. In, in your line of work, in, yeah. in, in treating people, um, has it become less orthodox to be so forthcoming? A therapist who reveals something of him or herself to help oh, connect? I would say so. I mean, there are still traditional forms of psychotherapy which say, you know, whose who's, uh, theory is based in the idea that you don't tell people who you are. But more and more, people are not putting up with that anymore. People don't want that from their therapists. And there are now schools of therapy, which I've been, one of them is called narrative therapy, which I've been very influenced by, in which it's totally acceptable to talk about your life to people. As long as you keep your eye on the person, it can't become about you. It's not for you. Um, Robin Williams, of course, was a famous improviser. Um, Gus, was that, was it a very long leash that you gave him as, as soon as you cast him in the film? Or are you a director who often encourages your actors to improvise? Um, I, I think I, <clears throat> I like the idea of the actors improvising and when, they, when they're doing it, um, I don't stop them, and if they are really liking their own improvisation, they encourage themselves, and then they'll they'll continue. I think the ones that were really standing out, like Casey Affleck. Oh my God! Myself. He created his part. I mean, he really <laughs> did create his part. He yeah. threw improv. So, what was it like to be in a scene? You have the a couple scenes with Casey. Did, did you just know that once you sat down, maybe all the lines you memorized were out the window? Well, no, because he just, you just do your thing and he would just do his, you know. But they, Matt, Matt and Ben did a really cool thing and they, you know, when, when it was all like Academy Award time and they, they, they print the script so everyone who's voting can read the script. And they wanted it to be the script that they wrote so that someone could actually watch the film and they could see where the improv came, which was, there was a lot. I mean, the structure and... There were plenty of scenes that were exactly as written, but there was plenty of improv in it. And I, I always loved the fact that they wanted you to see that. They wanted to see how this was... It was beautifully collaborative, and they were so generous in the way that they invited all of us into the story that they created, and then we made it something else. Yeah. Stellan, there's a fairly famous story about, uh, about Robin Williams improvising with you. Was it your first day on the set with him? I don't remember, but, uh, but I see... I, I, <laughs> It wasn't in the film that I saw yesterday, um, but uh, he he was he was of course, he was constantly improvising and 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 I like that because it if you prepare properly uh, it is gets trashed totally by somebody else improvising and that's really good uh, because you usually you get a little stiff and too too skillful and too elegant if if you're performance doesn't get fucked up by someone. And he was really good at that. But there was one time I was coming, it was the beginning of a rather big scene that ends with him calling me, uh, calling me arrogant prick or something, uh, something like unfair like that. Uh, and, uh, and every time I, 
the first take, I came in and it wasn't him, it was, uh, I, th I think it was Jack Nicholson was standing there. And he talked <laughs> like Jack Nicholson, he behaved like Jack Nicholson. And I tried to play the scene with him because I'm really bad at improvising. <laughs> uh, so, so it became very strange and then everybody laughed. And then we had to do it again and I came in and then it was James Cagney. Uh, and that went on. I think it was like five or six takes with different persons I met in that bar every time. Um, and then he, gradually he did something more and more like the character in the, in the film. But I, but I had a feeling, every take was, he also had this urge. He had an idea, then he had to get it out. Yeah. I remember when we, 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 everybody was happy with the scene and we were going to move on. And he could say, but I, it, I just got to do one thing. And then you had to do the scene again just for him to get it out of his system. Um, and it was extremely entertaining, of course. But also, Stellan, um, you came from, a, uh, this, um, from Stockholm, you know, or you came from another culture, another type of acting, I think, that um, I don't know about the improvisation specifically, but you would, physically you would improvise. And during one of the first scenes with, between um, your character and Robin's character, Stellan went to um, a side of the room and there was part of the um, set dressing was a cage with a rat in a cage. It was a rubber rat. Do you remember this? No, I don't. And <laughs> Stellan, like, reached in and took hold of the rat and started acting with it. And, and pointing it at Sean, Robin's character. And, like, and then uh, you looked over at one, one time and said, do you like the rat? <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> but not not everything do, ended up in the film. You would do that quite a bit. I think physically there was a lot of improvisation. Mm. Yeah. It's not like, you know, mm. um, verbal. No, I'm really bad at making up lines as I go. <laughs> but, I, but I like to not be prepared. Uh, for, I, I mean, not having the scene totally blocked and stuff physically. You know, that my, my, favorite, my favorite one, I mean, apart from watching the Robin and Matt bits of, of improv, when Matt, had, it was lunchtime, and you know, he was producing this film, and he was writing it, and he was starring in it, and it was a big deal. And he was exhausted. And he'd fallen asleep in the college set, in my college bedroom, and he'd fallen asleep in the bed. And we had this scene after lunch that took place in the bed, so I think he thought he'd just got to get a head start on the whole thing. But, you know, it was, it was this whole scene... And I remember Jean-Yves, who was the amazing cinematographer, saying, you know, well, you guys were like, well, let's just let him, let him sleep and we'll just shoot it from above. And they just built this. And the guys just worked really quietly. And he didn't wake, Matt didn't wake up. And they, they built this structure so you were above the bed. And then Gus was just like, we'll just go and get into the bed. And, you know, I got in the bed and I was like, babe, you know, we've got to do, we've got to do the thing. And he's like... And I was like, just do the, you know. So we just, it was so quiet and it was so sleepy. And we did that scene based around like him really being asleep. And like a, he knew he just had to get to the place where he has to wake up and reach out and stop her from calling Chucky. But it was like, just say stuff to kind of try and get him to respond. And he really <laughs> didn't because he really was asleep. <laughs> but I love that everything worked around that. We didn't wake him up and make him... We worked around that, and it is such a beautiful... With Elliot's soundtrack, it's such a beautiful scene. It's one of my very favorite. 
You are listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more about goodwill hunting. That's, that's a lovely story because we usually hear from actors how inauthentic any scenes that take place in a bedroom feel. And that sounds very genuine and sweet. Gus, was it, was it difficult when it came to editing, when you had so many choices, from, especially from Robin Williams? Um, let's see. Um, it, was, it was the nor- normal. So I think we were trying to shoot very long takes. Every scene was done from the beginning to end uh, from each camera angle. And we were hoping that maybe we could preserve that and have the long takes be part of it. But um, the difficulty is, like, in editing is usually just the normal uh, taking so many different takes and combining them into a single scene. Um, it was, it was a f- you know, a few months. It was the normal five months. It wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't super difficult. Well, Robin Williams' last line in the film, I think it's, it was famously improvised. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah, he stole my line. He yeah. stole my line, yeah. He was, but one thing that was going on, which was a tragedy that I didn't uh, roll the cameras, was that, <clears throat> especially in, in uh, Sean's office, there was, um, we would do very, you know, long takes. Sometimes the scenes were five minutes long. And we would, uh, it was in film, so we no longer, we didn't have, like, modern conveniences. Like, like focus was harder, and we would have to measure everything so that, the camera would would work its way around the room and the characters were working their way around the room and they would have to freeze while we focused in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, and so you'd do the lines to make sure that you knew where you were going to be in the room and everybody would freeze and like measuring tape would go out. And we had a famously bad like... Bad focus problem. Focus he problem. went back to driving a <laughs> so cab. So he needed to like <laughs> measure... He me- needed to measure it like about Motherfucker, 10 times. it ruined so much. It really was actually it quite... Did. Now we can say it. But, um, now we can say it. Is he dead? Is he here? No. Um, but his, his father was the head of the union, so he couldn't be, he couldn't be touched. Couldn't fired. be touched. Couldn't be fired. We were in Canada. But um, each time that they did it, Robin would do his... Robin his called bit. him Helen. What did he call him? Helen Keller. <laughs> Robin would do his part as... Like, I remember Robin doing Janet Reno at the time. <laughs> and then um, Matt would do his part as Daffy Duck. <laughs> and then the next time around, because we'd have to do it m- multiple times, um, you know, uh, Robin would choose a different character, Frankenstein, and then uh, Matt would be Nixon. <laughs> and it was, it, it was really entertaining, and I, I was having a good time. And af- <laughs> uh, the, after that, the day after, I was like, isn't that great? Isn't it fun when you guys are... Or improving that way. It wasn't, wasn't really, we never recorded it, but Matt said, no, it's exhausting. <laughs> like, and he was keep trying to keep up with Robin. Yeah. Robin's yeah. imagination. Was... Paul, how much improvisation is involved in being a good therapist? Oh, I'd say it's all improvisation. I mean, you can't know what's going to happen. So you have to constantly be letting go of what you think you know is happening and be open to the moment, which is what improvisation is. And the, you know, one of the rules of improvisation is also saying yes and, and it's the same thing. It's, like, it's not helpful to block someone and say no. So it's, it, it really feels like a, a give and take. And that was something I loved about this film as well, was that they both get healed through the, through the relationship. It has a, it, it's a back and forth. 
which I think is so often overlooked as to what the therapist is getting from the experience. Mm. And this, in this film, he, this therapist is, is, by the end of their relationship, he is better than he was at the beginning. Something's happened for him. Mm. Brian, I think we, we talk about, when people talk about improvisation, they, the first thing they think of is acting or improvisational comedy. But surely, there's, there must be improvisation in science and math, is there? I mean, I think anything that's creative is ultimately improvisation. If you're following some sort of template, you're never going to do anything that's fundamentally new or different. So what mathematicians, what physicists do is they look out at the world, take the data that everybody else is receiving, internalize it, find new patterns, find mathematics that can describe those patterns, and hopefully give a deeper understanding of what's out there. That procedure can't be mandated. It can't be systematized. This whole notion of the scientific method is like the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Why? There's no scientist ever in their office, OK, what's step two of the scientific method? OK, <laughs> oh, we're up to hypothesis. OK, uh, it, it never happens that way. You're mixing it all together. You're doing things differently than you ever did it before if you have a hope of producing something that's novel, mm. by definition. Same with method acting. There it is. <laughs> so, so I think a big ingredient in, in improvisation is having someone to bounce something off of, right? Having someone to, to listen and respond. Where does that someone come in when you're a, a, a physicist or a mathematician? That would be your graduate student. Uh, <laughs> Uh, or your postdoc, or your colleague down the hall, or the person you're working with in India. I mean, now we're just this huge community around the world, and everybody is bouncing ideas off of one another, either informally or more formally. You get on the internet every morning, and you look at this archive that has all the papers that were published the previous evening, and they come from all over the world, and you're seeing what everybody else is thinking about, what everybody else is doing, and you take whatever inspiration you can from that, and it drives your work the next day. Yes, and... That's right. what it is, yes. Yeah. Now, sometimes it is no, I have to say. There's a little different, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, no, that's wrong. There is a right and wrong in science, which is a nice thing about and in mathematics, whereas in many other areas, it's like, yeah, that's kind of okay. I can sort of see that. I understand where you're coming from. There is a right and a wrong in our subject, and that's a very powerful tool to have. I would say there is an acting, too, but, you know, there are some people yeah. who are like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Do you, you know. as an actor, Minnie, do you do you also know when you've made a wrong choice? Like, if, oh yeah, yeah, oh, I mean, hell yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you do. And if you're, you know, if you're lucky, you you don't let it bother you in as much as you let it teach you. I mean, that's really when when you get a bit older as well. That's how it gets better, and you're like, oh yeah, I might do that again. That was terrible. Or it was good because it taught me about this. Or, you know, it's good, it's, it's good to look at the stuff where you, where you mess up as, you know, they're not, there, isn't, there aren't really any kind of mistakes, I don't think. I think there are hard things to deal with as a result of mistakes, but I, I think it usually leads you to something else. Let's talk about the math in the film. And I want to return to the, to the point that you, that you brought up, Brian. Apparently, Gus, maybe you can confirm this. When when Matt and Ben originally wrote the script, they or when Matt Damon was thinking about it, right? Because I don't know if you guys know the lore behind behind Goodwill Hunting, but he had Matt Damon had started writing something in a playwriting class his senior year at Harvard, and I guess he talked to um, is this a, a physicist you know, Sheldon Glashow? Is that his name? Sure. Yeah. Did he teach you? I did have him. There you Physics go. one forty five. Okay. Yeah, so so. Uh, apparently, Matt talked to Sheldon, if I may call him Sheldon, um, who, who suggested that perhaps 
choosing the character to be a physics prodigy would not be exactly fecund dramatically. So, um, so he suggested math. What, what do you think of that, Brian? What if, what if young Will Hunting had been a physics prodigy? Would it have changed the film? Uh, uh, you know, I don't think it would have fundamentally changed it. There are aspects of physics which are so close to mathematics that they're virtually indistinguishable. Having some deep insight about the universe, though, typically is a group project in the modern era. Doing some mathematical theorem is a singular undertaking very often. So I think it does work better in the sense of you got this guy and just sees a problem on the board and he goes ahead and solves it. It's unlikely that someone could look at data by themselves and come up with a theory of the origin of the universe on their own. It just is less believable. This is totally believable. It does happen. There's a problem and someone from left field solves it. In, in this particular film, the problem that's on the board, which has taken Fields Medal winner, Professor Lambeau, what, two years to solve. Um, is it a problem that you personally understand? When, when you saw the film, were you like, oh, yeah, I could well, do that with a mop? Well, it goes by so hand. quickly. You know, so um, I, I, I know what the first problem is. I don't know the second one. I think the second one is the one where the claim is that it took a couple years. The first one is actually um, not a particularly difficult problem, it turns out. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, and uh, as I was thinking about today, I realized where these problems, and tell me if I'm wrong, they must have come from John Mighton, who is your sidekick in the film, because he's a graph theorist. He's a friend of mine. And they're all graph was, theory problems. Um, yeah. There was Pat, Pat O'Donnell, who played the, uh, the, the guy at the bar who says bullshit and uh, very loudly to, uh, to uh, Robin as he's doing one of his, telling one of his stories. Um, he, was, he was in a restaurant that when we were um, preparing the movie. And then I saw him as a, a good guy to be sitting at the bar, and it turned out he was the the head of the uh, University of Toronto mathematics department. <laughs> and we thought, oh, two and one. Uh, <laughs> and we needed help with the um, with the problems, and he 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 hooked us up with John, John Mighton, yeah. who was uh, Jerry. No, you're Jerry. Tom, he was Tom. Tom you're yeah. Jerry. And um, so he, they were kind of, and they both. I think Pat was leading the way, but John was very active in, uh, in he was one of his students. Yeah, I think, because these are problems that John worked on. Yeah, he and I did a project something completely different years ago. Uh, and the first one is a pretty straightforward problem, it turns out. The second one, though, I don't know what it is. It went by too fast. So, um, so just to be clear, the, the man who plays your assistant in the film, Stellan, is a mathematician? Who yeah, he's the only one on screen that understands anything. <laughs> So how important was it to you? I mean, did you try to understand this math? It didn't help. Uh, he, he actually <laughs> tried to teach me and, and make me understand those things, but it was impossible. Uh, so I, I did the only thing I could, acted, uh, pretended. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but he actually learned something from it because he later he wrote a couple of books about teaching children math. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> His whole philosophy is that if you break down a math idea into sufficiently small pieces, absolutely anybody can understand them bite by bite by bite. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Almost anybody. Yeah. Do you think? Do I think that's true? Uh, to some extent. I think there are ideas that, yeah, you could break it into bites, but it would take you like the age of the universe to get through all the bites to get to the end of it. But yes, many things. You break it into small enough pieces and you can, you can absorb it. Is there a way, Brian, of 
kind of explaining the, the math in a macro level, that, so we can all understand how the math it's, in, in the yes, yeah, so how it's problem? relatively easy. Oh, oh, God! It actually it is. Um, uh, it's almost embarrassingly so. Oh, embarrass uh, yourself. You know, so so you know, you had all these little dots on the screen with all these connections between them, and problem one A was just count the number of lines that are emanating from one dot and landing on another. That's all part 1A is. It's a counting problem. So the answer that you see on the board, this matrix, each entry in there is just counting the number of lines going from one node to any other node. And the other problems are a variation on that theme. How many paths of length 3, I think, is problem 1C? And you just take that matrix and you multiply it by itself three times to get path length 3. So, um, you know, but I think all this is, in some sense, totally irrelevant, right? It goes by in a nanosecond, in an instant, and that's a good thing, because the whole point of this was simply to say, here is a mind that you wouldn't anticipate being able to do this stuff. It's hard stuff, and yet this mind is able to do it, and that's so thrilling that out of left field, there can be someone who just comes on the scene like a comet. And they mentioned Ramanujan. Right? I mean, I think there's even a film that, that Sloan is funding that's coming out on Ramanujan. He was this Indian mathematician who was by himself in the dusty outskirts in India, came upon some math books, self-taught himself, and wrote down these theorems that came to him from this very rudimentary training. Sends them to the mathematician Hardy in Cambridge. Hardy looks at the theorems and says, if these are right, this guy is like, absolutely astounding. If they are wrong, he's even more amazing, the greatest mathematical genius of all time, for being able to think of such a theorem if it's not true. Wow, what this thing can do, right? This gray blob, what it can accomplish. That's so thrilling. And that's what this is all about in the film. The details of the math, I think, are just kind of irrelevant. In your, go ahead, Paul. Well, I was going to say, as an audience member, I think that many of us have been traumatized by math. Like, for most people, math, like when I start hearing you speak about all those spokes coming out, I, go, I start getting an adrenaline reaction. <laughs> because it reminds me of, of math, which was really hard. I found math really difficult. So it ups the ante for the, you know, we, we are even more amazed at right, the right. ability. If, whereas I think many, many people haven't done physics or haven't done other, mm-hmm. other forms of science. So, yeah, and the tr- I mean, the, so it's poetic, but there's the, the trauma of this kid who's so traumatized that it interferes with his relationships, it interferes with his ability to really function, and yet his capacity to do math is just stellar. Yeah. So how anomalous do you think a genius like the character of, of Will Hunting is, right? So. You, you, you read any like basic parenting book, and they tell you, you know, you want to grow a smart child, you make sure that child feels safe and loved, right? And this character grows up with none of that. So, um, you know, and then you, you read Malcolm Gladwell, who talks about 10,000 hours, right? But then you just have this kid who's a genius. Especially in, in your experience, Paul, when you've worked with, with traumatized children, mm. you know, this is the nature-nurture question, I guess. Like, will genius out itself, or... Can intellectual growth be tremendously stunted? I, you know, it's really not something that I work a lot with. But I've, I think that it's clear that there is, there's often an element of trauma that 
that accompanies people who are genius. I mean, we see it a lot of people, for example, with autism. You see pe people with autism have a particular kind of genius, often. Um, there, are there are lots of examples of people who've had injuries, people who've knocked their heads on the, in a swimming pool, or people, a man who was struck by lightning, who suddenly becomes a, pian a pianist. And though he was never able to play before, he's suddenly driven to play the piano, spending the 10,000 hours, and a genius at it. So there are a whole lot of theories as to why the trauma might encourage the genius in some way. And one of them is that um, there are parts of the brain that keep, keep the brain in check. And that when those parts become damaged or traumatized, they stop keeping control so that creativity is free to explode. This doesn't mean that you should go home and beat no. your kids, no. <laughs> doesn't happen Just to, to make most them successful. By the way, Minnie, did, did, uh, were you motivated to try to learn any organic chemistry when you Don't were? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I'm basically a numerate, and it's, a, I mean, really shockingly. I, but, I was, but I was traumatized. I didn't become a genius. I just had someone tell me I was really bad at math when I was nine. And I'm looking at, I don't know why I'm looking at you when I said that, but it was awful, and I never, I'm, I'm a really, really, I, you know, when I hear the words, a train leaves the station, traveling at a speed. Oh, I get very scared. So I mean, yeah, that's the no. flip side of having a right and a wrong. You can be really wrong in first grade or second grade or third grade, and that can be traumatic. And it's up to the education system to not allow kids to have those experiences because, you know, getting something wrong, you will now remember it. So it's a great lesson for going forward and getting it right the next time. But yeah, that's a common story, which is really tragic. I said that to my kid the other day. I was like, uh, when I, I, he's doing this thing called Singapore math, which a lot of the yeah. schools are adopting. Are you for or against? Uh, I don't know enough about it to judge it, but it certainly is effective there. Well, good. I mean, it means nothing to me, obviously. But I was talking about it with my son, and I said, what's, I was like, what's going to happen when we, we get to homework? And I'm, I'm re I feel really sorry that I'm not going to be able to teach you and, and help you. And he went, don't worry, I'll teach you. Oh. <laughs> You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more about Goodwill Hunting. You know, I, I read, I just read some interesting research that, that it's a, a, scientists are saying that it's an actual mind, or people who research this are saying it's an actual mindset that in, I mean, it's a generalization, but in Eastern countries, um, Math is looked at as a skill that you can work hard at and acquire. And in the West, we think of it as a talent, as genius. Like, oh my gosh, you understand math? You must be so smart. Rather than, oh, you must have like, settled down and worked really hard the way some kid learns the alphabet you know, at, a, at an elementary age. Uh, Brian, as someone who, um, who is probably a, a genius, um, <laughs> um, why do you think that, that word? <laughs> Is, it is so much more quicker to be assigned to people who work in, in science and math than, I mean, is it because what you do is esoteric? Or are, are there more people who are great at improvisational comedy than can understand string theory? Um, you know, I think the bottom line is um, there is something that happens in some individuals where they're able to solve problems and see further than any of us. And I don't think 
we're anywhere near knowing what that is. I mean, from a toddler, right? I mean, a toddler has so many influences from the world impinging on him or her all the time, filtered through the particular DNA and structure, neurological connections inside the brain. It's such a complicated problem that for us to ever really hope that we'll say, aha, this is why that right. kid is smart. Or, you know, I don't think we'll ever be able to do it. But it's thrilling that there are these anomalous examples. And in terms of how frequent they are, I don't know, it's hard to say. Uh, there are a handful that I know in the world today, right? Edward Witten from the Institute for Advanced Study, right? He is widely regarded as Einstein's successor. Uh, I had the privilege of working with him, right? We'd be in his office. We have on the board some complicated problems. And Jesus Christ, he would just look at it and write down the answer. And we all sit there. And then he goes off and he's like thinking and thinking. No one wants to say anything. What's happening inside that brain? You know, and then he's like, oh, I think it's time for lunch. You know, it's like, you know, so. He throws so, down his chalk and says, how do you like them apples, right? Uh, you, you know, what? the amazing thing is that you just can't really get inside a head like that. I like, you know, your character, you know, says, you know, in some sense, I can't sleep, right? Knowing that there's somebody like you out there. Mm. That's, I, I know the feeling. I mean, I'm able to sleep, right? But uh, there is a sense of, wow, there are these others who are so much better. They see so much further. Now, it doesn't mean your work is worthless, but it does give you a sense of yearning to be able to do that. We're, we're talking about this, this inimitable, amazing character who's such a genius, but, but as... As you've said, Stellan, people come up to you all the time and and tell you how much they love this film. I read an interview where you said, you know, some people say I watch it once a year, some people say I've seen it 30 times. And, you know, Gus, why do you think this film is so beloved? Why is it so resonant with people when it's about such a specific type of person? Um, I don't know. I remember re first reading the script and just feeling like uh, drawn in by the novelty of this character that's, that seemed very smart, and they were in the screenplay uh, describing him as somebody that could read a book almost like flipping the pages. You know, it was, it was some kind of other level of intelligence that I, you know, was beyond me. So it's, you're kind of drawn in partly by that, and then the, that the character has an Achilles, Achilles heel, and he's not perfect, and he's tied down, he has, prob he has problems. Um, like together, like sort of draws you into this story, and and also the resolution is, I mean, the development and resolution is great. But I'm imagining that's a lot of it. And and many, when we first started, you said that this film is very precious to you. Why is it so precious? Well, because it's beautiful and it's great, and it it exactly is a. It has so much in it that is it's so funny, and it's so sad, and it's so full of redemption. And it's so romantic and full of love. It's all genuine, all those components. And sometimes in a film, you'll have a piece of it here or there. You know, Elliot's music, the way it was edited, Danny Elfman's score, Gus, every actor in it, every word that was written or improvised, the cinematography, the editing, it, it's all so beautiful. And it's, such, it's so amazing. I mean, you know, for that to come together um, so gracefully, you know, it, it's just rare and precious. And, you know, just by going to the movies, how rare that is. I mean, 
doesn't, it really doesn't happen very often. I think that's beautifully put. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you all so much for joining us. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, a reasonably length panel about short videos with the creators of High Maintenance and Billy on the Street.